Welcome back to Match Volume with Elle and Ella. We're your hosts, Ella Katz and Elle Davidson. So today's episode looks at California wildfires and really more specifically the way we contextualize them by referring to the indigenous community and their history in California. The interview is with Jared Aldern and was conducted by our very own peer, Sean Flannelly. So Elle, who is Jared? Jared is an environmental historian and fire practitioner. He retired from educational and tribal government staff careers um, to become a lead investigator and research associate with the West on Fire Research and Education Initiative of the Huntington USC Institute on California. And he's also um, a co-founder of the Sierra Sequoia Burn Cooperative. So it'll be really interesting to get his perspective on the way that wildfires have shaped California's history, especially in relation to indigenous communities. Well, I know I can't wait to listen. So here's Here's Jared Jared Aldern. Right. So I'm a, a historical ecologist or environmental historian. Uh, I've spent quite a few years uh, or part of my career looking into or investigating the fire history of California and uh, that involves uh, quite a bit of of looking at indigenous fire history uh, or how the how the patterns and um, seasonality and intensities of fires might have been different uh, prior to the arrival of European Americans in in California, and so uh, it's really looking at uh, how how fire proceeds differently under an indigenous regime. Uh, so my particular interest is in looking into uh, oral histories with indigenous practitioners, or uh, what I call really land-based history in the sense of, of going out with practitioners and interviewing them or having conversations with them on site. Can we back up a little bit? You mentioned uh, what the land might look like under a tribal fire regime. Could you just talk about what, like, what is a tribal fire regime and, and how does that look different from, from what we've had in place for the last like 50 to 60 years? Sure, yeah, or if you want to go back a, a little further, it's um, really the the indigenous way of doing things or relating to the land, including the uh, indigenous uses of fire as a, as a tool, really started to get uh, disrupted with the arrival of the first Spaniards in the 18th century. The big change uh, was when a lot of land, millions of acres, came under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Forest Service in the early 1900s and a policy of, of fire suppression was put into practice. And uh, what happened in, in that case was uh, through, throughout all those disruptions, you know, indigenous people were dislocated, relocated off of their land, and fires, the, their burning practices, their intentional applications of, of fire to the land were prohibited. Uh, to varying degrees. And then, as I say, the big change was in the early 1900s with the Forest Service uh, essentially suppressing all all fire. So uh, that would be both lightning fires, uh, but also making it clearly illegal for tribal practitioners and other practitioners to get out on the land and 
light what they knew to be beneficial fires. Because at that time, uh, around 1905 until 1911 is when the policy really came into, came into place. And uh, the powers that be in the Forest Service viewed all fire as destructive. Destructive to timber resources in, in particular, just a, a scary destructive uh, kind of force. So this wasn't just naturally occurring fires that they were letting burn, but it was also like prescribed burns is what you're saying? Yes. So the, the policy in 1911 became no matter what the ignition source, no matter what the cause of the fire was, uh, the policy became to put that fire out in, at by 10 a.m. the next morning. Uh, it was known as the 10 a.m. policy. The forest in, say, 1850 consisted of, of large trees here in the Sierra Nevada. It was spaced out. It was, a, it was a forest that you could see through. And after the fire suppression policy, first of all, I should say that many of those large trees were clear-cut in the late 1800s by uh, commercial timber op operators. And then the, the Forest Service came in to regulate the timber industry but they were also interested in finding a way to allow trees to regrow. So when they suppressed the fire, all kinds of seedlings began to fill in those open spaces between the large pine trees or the stumps of the large pine trees. We ended up with a much different forest structure. Uh, instead of large, widely spaced, trees, uh, you had, uh, you know, what a lot of people call a, a dog hair thicket. Um, small diameter trees that were as thick as the hair on a dog's back um, that you can't see through uh, or travel through easily. Essentially, the, the irony of the situation is that in attempting to exclude all fire, uh, you ended up with a, uh, the Forest Service ended up with a, an explosively flammable Forest. And where did that Forest Service policy come from? Was it just a misunderstanding of like the the ecology at the time, or was it like a deliberate, uh, or was it a refusal to actually to, to listen to fire ecologists or, or anyone speaking on the matter? Like, I'm just wondering how that misconception came to be. The scientists of the time felt that it was a good thing uh, to to exclude fire. Um, you know, science, science changes over time. I'd say the immediate cause was uh, what's known as the big blow-up. Um, it was summer uh, and fall of, you know, extremely large catastrophic fires uh, in 1910 that resulted in the deaths of a number of firefighters and uh, civilians, and there was a, a realization on the part of Forest Service leadership you know, fires uh, were uh, were always going to be a bad thing, and that they they needed to be suppressed. And what is the oral, oral history component that you mentioned in, in Compass? Yeah, we'll be um, interviewing tribal practitioners and uh, and also non-tribal folks. I'm I'm looking forward to doing some interviews with uh, Southern California Edison, uh, which is a, a major landowner. Um, in the in the Shaver Lake and, and Dinky Creek areas, uh, just up up the slope from where I am right now on the on the valley floor, 
Uh, and uh, the, um, the idea is to spark conversations with folks, as I, as I say, on site, uh, so that you, you might ask someone who's engaged in a prescribed burn or what we call a cultural burn uh, about their strategies, what they're trying to accomplish, and really how they learned um, to do what they're doing. Who taught them or from whom they, they learned and then who taught those people uh, that, that they learned from, how the traditions have been carried on or the traditional practices um, or, or practices that are, are, are really um, based on, on experience, experiential knowledge uh, that's been carried on for generations in many cases. Why are you interested in, in, in fire ecology and fire history and, and what is your uh, like personal connection to this subject? The, the indigenous view as opposed to the settler view in general is interesting to me and how, how the land changed when settlers like the U.S. Forest Service as a government agency came in and changed the fire regime. Um, so my general interest is in changes in the land and uh, history of how uh, the land has changed. But uh, you know, as I, as I learned more about native history, um, it became more and more apparent in how important fire was and is as a tool in terms of uh, mediating that relationship between people, people in the land. I guess I'd add in terms of personal history that uh, I did, uh, I, I lived on 30 acres in San Diego, and in 2002, a major wildfire burned through, um, and uh, my house emerged unscathed thanks to an air tanker drop of the pink fire retardant and an engine crew from Arizona who came in and cut a hand line, um, burned down a beautiful 100-year-old barn uh, that we had on the, on the property, but the, the house itself was unscathed, so I'm, uh, I have the experience of having, having gone through a, a catastrophic wildfire. I understand this project also includes some hands-on, like prescribed burns that, that you guys are doing working with uh, indigenous leaders. Um, could you talk about, about where those will be, what those are, like what are you guys hoping to, to accomplish with that? As I say, the private landowners that we're working with um, are inviting tribal crews onto their land um, to reestablish uh, some, some of the fire that had, that had been in place or been happening on regular periodic basis basis for uh, for quite some time. And, and is that uh, kind of the way you talk about it? Is that a is that a cultural project or is that an ecology project? It's both. Uh, with the tribal involvement in this in this program, uh, you know, cultural burning or cultural fire on the part of the tribes has uh, many more multiple goals and objectives uh, as opposed to only reducing the, the chance of a, of a catastrophic wildfire. That is one of the goals. It's really a, a comprehensive, fire is really a comprehensive tool in the, in the hands of a knowledgeable cultural practitioner who is also, you know, benefiting the ecology. 
It's, a, it's an eco-cultural kind of phenomenon if you want to combine the words. And why is this something that, that you guys in, in, in a history institute at USC um, on, on private land have to do rather than like something that's being done on public lands owned by the Forest Service or, or people like that? Like, why hasn't this kind of thinking expanded to forest management in general? It's, it's expanding very slowly in isolated locations. Uh, it's, it's not a widespread movement, um, but there's, there's gathering momentum toward collaboration, more collaboration with tribes on large parcels of public land like national forests. The Forest Service is, is bound by all sorts of rules and, and regulations, including the, the National Environmental Policy Act. So uh, they need to go through what's essentially an environmental impact statement for any project that they propose, including prescribed fire projects. Uh, and then it's open to public comment and possibly open to litigation from uh, various groups that might not like the project as it's, as it's proposed. My last question would be like, as a reporter, what is the one thing that you see like reporters get wrong the most when it comes to uh, reporting on fires, especially as it, that gets more and more common and more and more dire? If I could cheat a little bit and tell you two things instead of just one thing. Uh, one is that uh, there is a tendency when there is a large fire toward sensationalism. Those photos and video of the huge smoke plumes and uh, raging flames are are very attractive in their attention getters and they are clickbait on the on the internet um, but they're also not the whole story I would ask reporters to to look more deeply because sometimes there's actually there are actually benefits even from a large wildfire you know it doesn't it doesn't no fire burns, uh, you know, an entire 400,000 acres uh, down to cinders. The other thing is I would ask um, reporters to, to take another step, if they can, and contact tribes in the region. Um, I, I did see a, a good public radio interview with a, with a tribal leader during the, the Creek Fire. I just appreciate that that, that reporter, you know, just used Google and found out how to get in touch with the tribal leadership. That's it for this week's episode. Tune in every Friday for new episodes of Match Volume and make sure to follow us on Instagram at Annenberg Media. This show is a production of Annenberg Media and is co-produced and co-hosted by me, Elle Davidson, and Ella Katz. For Annenberg Media at the University of Southern California, I'm Elle Davidson. And I'm Ella Katz. See you next week.